You know, Dr. King once famously said that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And it's a good quote and it's challenging, but the unfortunate reality is that there is injustice pretty much everywhere. All you have to do is turn on the news on any channel anywhere and you'll find it fairly quickly. There are slave camps and re-education camps in China that just about everybody knows about, but we just kind of shrug our shoulders and go, eh, not my problem today. The Taliban taking over Afghanistan. We have national stories, you know, like the murder of Gabby Petito that's kind of launched and captured a lot of people's imagination, a young woman who was murdered in a national forest, and then her fiancé shows up home alone without her and then just disappears. And so everyone kind of knows and goes, well, it seems like he obviously did it and it grabs our attention because why is there no justice? How have we not found this person? Why are people getting away with things like this? And part of the reason some stories grab our attention more than others is because all of us really do hate injustice. We might argue and disagree about whether what you're talking about is injustice or not, but all of us will agree that there is lots of injustice everywhere. And it enrages us, and it frustrates us, and rightly so, because it is a corruption of God's creation. And one of the things that happens when we see it is it makes us question and wonder, man, well, where is God? How can, in a world filled with this injustice, how can, or what is God doing? How can He be absent? Where is He? Well, this morning we're going to look at one such story. I've been going through the book of Judges, and we, we find ourselves this morning in chapter 9, and this is a story that's filled with injustice. The whole book of Judges, in fact, is filled with much of it, but this morning our chapter is bloody and violent, has enough drama it could be made into its own television series on HBO or taken from headlines of some other country. What we are going to do as we look at this story of injustice is try to see what does this teach us about God's justice and particularly God's fiery justice, as we'll see it in this chapter. So if you would, if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 9. Um, we're going to be mostly in chapter 9 and then the next five or the first five verses of chapter 10. So if you are able, would you stand with me um, just as we read from God's Word. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem, his mother's relatives, and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that the seventy sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember, I am of your bone and your flesh. And the mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Balbareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it's told to Jotham, he went, and he stood on the top of Mount Jezreel, and he cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and good fruit and go and hold sway over the trees? 
And the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I leave my wine that cheers God and men to go hold sway over the trees? And then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, if you've dealt well with Jerubal and his house and have done him as his deeds deserve, for as my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his, 70, his son, 70 men on one stone, and made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative." If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Bethnilo. Let fire come out of and from the leaders of Shechem and Bethnilo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech his brother. And Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. And the Lord sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dwelt treacherously with Abimelech. That the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerubal might come and their blood might be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them. And on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him in the mountaintops. And they robbed all who passed by them along that way as it was told to Abimelech. Then Gaul the son of Ebed moved into Shechem with his relatives and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. They went out to the field, gathered the grapes from the vineyards, and trod them, and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God, and ate and drank, and reviled Abimelech. And Gal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubal, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. And I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Zabel, the ruler of the city, heard the words that Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, his anger was kindled. He sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaul, the son of Ebed and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and sit in ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush into the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night, set up an ambush against Shechem in four companies, and Gaal the son of Ebed rode out, went out to the entrance of the gate of the city, and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. And Gaal spoke again, Look, the people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. And Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said... Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight them. And Gal went out with the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him and fled, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah and Zebul of Gal and his relatives, so they could no longer dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out of the field, and Abimelech was told, he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and he saw the people coming out from the city and he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and he killed the people who were in it and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. 
When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. And Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the, ta- were, of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and he cut down a bundle of brushwood. And he took it and he laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed in Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and women and the leaders of the city fled into it and shut themselves in. They went to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it, and he drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And this young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And also God made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. And after Abimelech, there also rose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, the man of Ishkar, and he lived in Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. And he died and was buried at Shemir. And after him rose Jair, the Giladite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys who had 30 cities called Havath-Jar to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jar died and was buried in Kimon. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would give us ears to hear this morning. Lord, that you would help us to see what passages like this have to teach us today. And especially what they have to say about your justice. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. And you can be seated. So point number one, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, is that God's justice allows unjust leaders, that's a judgment. God's justice allows unjust leaders as a judgment. I remind you first kind of where we're at in the book of Judges. We've looked at several cycles already of Israel falling away from the Lord, worshiping after other idols, sinning, and then God sends judgment usually through a foreign king and a foreign oppressor in another nation. And they dominate them and they hold them in slavery and bondage. And then God sends a judge or a deliverer. Deliverer saves them, he rules, they're good for a little bit, judge dies, and then they go back and worship other gods again and so on and so forth. But each cycle is a little bit of a spiral too. Things in the book of Judges really get worse and worse and worse as they go on. We watched last week as it descended with Gideon. We saw what happens after he delivered in his own sinfulness. But we see in this week is a strange story. This story has no judges. It has no foreign kings, no foreign nations. It actually has almost no foreigners at all. Everyone in this story is an Israelite. These cities are Israelite cities. Abimelech is one of the sons of Gideon. The only thing that's not Israelite in this chapter is the gods being worshipped. And even God himself seems absent because no one in this chapter is interested in anything about God. So that's the background of the story. We kind of summarize the, the first half of it just so you can get a grasp of what's going on. There's a lot of characters. There's some weird names and weird places. And God seems to be absent. 
Abimelech is the main character in this story, and he is one of Gideon's sons. But he's the son of one of his concubines, or one of his, not his wives, but his extra women. And when Gideon dies, okay, he's got 70 sons, 71 if you include Abimelech. And it's, well, who's going to take the throne? Who's going to be in charge? And so what happens at the time any king dies and his sons fight over it, but Abimelech here wins. He goes to the leaders and he says, hey, how about instead of all of us being in charge, let's just kill them and just I can be in charge. Let's streamline this, guys. Let's be efficient. Let's make the good choice. And so he convinces them in Israel at time to help him eliminate his competition. And he kills all of his brothers except for one, Jotham, who escapes. And then Jotham stands up on a mountaintop and gives a parable. A parable of judgment condemning both Abimelech and the city. So that's kind of the overview of the question there too is, well, why? Why are we reading about this? Why does God allow Abimelech? Why does he become king? Why doesn't God just do what he's done before? Why does he use an Israelite king to oppress the people? Why does, why does God do anything here? And the answer for us is that sometimes God allows ungodly leaders as a judgment. Israel thinks they're making progress as a nation, right? We're moving from just these judges. Let's just make it easier. Let's get a king like the other nations do. But they're actually moving backwards. Abimelech's reign over them is punishment for them abandoning God and choosing the other gods. We see it right at the end of chapter 8 in 33, 34, and 35. It tells us Gideon dies and the people of Israel turn again and they whore after the balls and they made Baal-bareth their god. That name is also funny. Baal-bareth, it is the Canaanite god of the covenant. They have abandoned the Israelite god of God's covenant and they want to serve a different god and after that god's covenant. And if you thought Gideon was a bad king last week, Abimelech is almost even worse. Abimelech manages to act like Judas, the Antichrist, and Satan all in one small, quick chapter. He acts like Judas, and then he's paid with some silver. He acts like the Antichrist, and he tricks his people into making him king, and then it leads them to judgment. And he acts like Satan and having his head crushed like the serpent at the end of it. And he starts telling them, everyone should make me king. Which is better? All 70 sons of Jerubal rule over you. Notice too, Gideon's name. He's getting the Canaanite name, not the name on an Israelite name. And let me be king over you. So they agree. And like Judas, he's paid in silver. They give him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bareth. This gold doesn't come from the tabernacle. This gold comes from a different temple, a different house that they've built to a different god. They take that God's money and they give it to Abimelech. And then he, like Judas, he's paid and then he betrays his brothers. And he uses at least some of that money, probably not all of it, to hire some worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. It should tell you about his qualities and abilities as a king and a leader of the kind of people that follow him. One, he has to pay people to follow him. And then two, these are the people that he has to find that he can pay worthless fellows. And with all these men, he goes to his father's house at Oprah. Verse 5, and he kills his brothers, 70 men on one stone. Stone is going to come back again, but on here we have this image of one bloody stone. All of his brothers are killed one after another. That would take some time. This is brutal. This is horrific. Just standing by as a witness of this. Watching these brutal murders unfold on a rock as the blood covers it and it pools in the ground and they carry the bodies away and throw them up in a pile would stay with you for a long time. Let alone committing this, but just being a witness to it and being a part of it would probably give you PTSD. 
because this is violent and awful. There's a reason we don't do the judges a lot, right? On flanographs with children because of stories like this. How do you portray this horror and this evil and this injustice to kids, let alone to us? And after all of this slaughter, all the leaders of Shechem come together and they went out and they make Abimelech king by the oak, the pillar of Shechem. That's an oak tree where Jacob buried idols and false gods and here they erect a king. Gideon was too afraid to call himself a king, right? He sinned a lot and he did a lot and he clearly wasn't obeying God. But he still was willing to give God lip service and pretend that he was honoring God. Abimelech doesn't care about that at all and neither do the Israelites here. They've abandoned any pretense of obeying God and a worthless evil leader is installed over Israel. Why? It's a judgment on them. And Shechem, this is a, a place that is significant. Shechem is really kind of a spiritual barometer of Israel and what's going on in their life. There's so much history that takes place all throughout God's word at this small town of Shechem. It'd be worth looking it up later and studying it. It's here at this place Abraham first hears the promise from God that he will make a nation of him. It's here by an oak tree at Shechem that Abraham builds an altar to worship God. So that same oak tree we hear about again when Jacob comes to Shechem. And Jacob builds another altar to God. Joseph's bones are buried in this town. Joshua, at the end of the book, right before the book of Judges, right in Joshua chapter 24, he comes and he sets up a large stone under that oak tree. It could be that very stone of the covenant to remind them of what God has done that all of these brothers are killed on. We don't know. It's not that far removed from it, but it could be. But most significant for our purposes here, there are two mountains on the side of Shechem. Shechem is in a valley and there are two mountains on both sides of it. If you woke up and walked outside your tent or your house, you would see them. And these mountains are significant because these mountains have some history. When Moses led Israel into the promised land and he stopped here at Shechem, God had some special instructions for him at this place. And I normally try and just stay in the text that we're at, but it's worth it this morning to flip over quickly to Deuteronomy 11, um, verse 29, to see what God says uh, about this place and with these mountains. Deuteronomy 11, verse 29. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Jezreel, and the curse on Mount Ebal. So when they come to this place and they get to this city, they are to go and they are to set up all of the list of the blessings from obeying God. Hey, you obey God, here's all the blessings that you're going to get. Put it on top of that mountain on this side of Shechem. And they take the list of all of the curses, all of the punishments. Hey, if you don't follow God, here's what's going to happen. And put that on the other side of the mountain. So every morning when they wake up and come out of that mountain, they can see, hey, here are our choices of what we're going to do today. Are we going to be blessed by God and listen to that mountain or are we going to be cursed by him according to that one? And so on both ma these mountains are, are public displays to remind them that they should be obeying God. And living between them should give them that reminder every single day. It's hard. Their choices should be staring at them. So when one of Abimelech's brothers escapes, when Jotham, Jotham appears and he stands on top of Mount Jezreel, the Mount of Blessing, and he gives this parable, it is, they would know, well, if they remembered, but there's significance in that. Israelites who read this story later and knew their Bibles know, oh wait, that's the Mountain of Blessing. 
And so Jocelyn tells this story, this parable about trees from standing on top of that. And he basically is saying, you know, the trees want a king, so they keep going after tree after tree to ask him. But all the good trees, the trees that are worth anything, don't want it. So why would I want to do that? That's a waste of my time. Except for the bramble or the thorn bush. And the bramble represents Abimelech here. And the bramble says, well, hey, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. I heard some laughs when I read that part. That's good. You, you got that. There's some irony here. What kind of shade are you going to get from a thorn bush? Not very good shade. I've got five big old pecan trees in my house. I have great shade in my yard. I, I, I like it when it's sunny. I don't like it when I got to pick up all the leaves and everything else involved with it. Right? But if I had a bunch of big thorn bushes in my yard, that's not very much shade. That's horrible. This is a bad leader and a bad king. And Jotham's story, it's all about this good faith. Three times it repeats it. Verse 15, hey, if in good faith. 16, if in good faith. 19, hey, if in good faith and integrity, you've acted towards Gideon and his house, then rejoice in Abimelech and rejoice in him. But if not, let the fire come out of Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem. Jotham's saying, hey, standing on the mountain of blessing, if y'all have been obeying God and what you've done is just and obedient and righteous, then huzzah, you're going to get the blessings of the covenant. But if not, then let the fiery justice of God come out and devour you. Three times again, he says, let the fire come out, let the fire come out, let the fire come out, and God's fire does come out. The people of Israel, much like trees, get exactly the king that they deserve. And the king himself, Abimelech, is a part of their judgment for abandoning God. Abimelech is not king because God's justice is absent. He's actually king because God's justice is present. God is allowing him to be king just as a judgment. There was a European philosopher in the 1800s kind of famously said, maybe you've heard this before, that people get the government they deserve. Right? And there's some, some truth there. But sometimes God lets this happen because of his judgment because of him. And that's how it happens here. They're getting the king that they deserve. They wanted the bramble, and they'll get it, and they'll get the bramble shade, and then they'll get the fire of God's judgment. So what does this mean for us? You know, now what I don't think this means is I don't think this means necessarily we can always go every time a politician gets elected that I don't like that, ah, that must be God's judgment. Okay? Maybe it is. It very well might be. But we don't know that for sure. Sometimes that is how God does it. That's how God does it here with Israel. What this does mean is just because we see unjust or evil leaders doing unjust things, that does not mean that God is absent. It might mean that God is doing that on purpose. It might not be a symbol of his absence, but a symbol of his presence and his judgment. Point number two in, in your notes is that God's justice comes for everyone. God's justice comes forever. And again, I'll summarize kind of the, the second half of the story from verse 22. So after the parable, Abimelech rules for three years over Israel. And then God sends an evil spirit. And this evil spirit stirs up division and conflict. So Israel gets very divided and fights because of God. God does this. And we see, we're to see this division as an act of justice. And so God brings a man named Gal into town and he rises up and he opposes Abimelech and he uses a lot of the same words like Abimelech and he does the same thing that Abimelech did. God's twisting it around against him and he says, hey, let's get rid of that Abimelech guy. He's kind of a jerk. Make me king instead. So yeah, cool. Good idea. Let's try that. See what happens. But Abimelech's number two man, Zebel, hears about the plot. 
So Abimelech comes in before they have time to really get going and they fight. Gaul gets driven out of town. But now Abimelech's mad and he kills everyone in town. And when they try and escape and hide in a tower, he burns it to the ground. All of them. But now he's riled up and so he just continues on his rampage, goes to another town, goes to do the same thing, but a random woman drops a stone on his head and kills him. Then he dies and everyone just kind of shrugs their shoulders and goes home. And that's the end of the story. Then the chapter ends then saying this was all part of God's justice, that God did this. But we see in this chapter what we're supposed to see in all of this is that God's justice comes for everyone. It comes for Abimelech. And it comes for Shechem. All of those who were involved in this evil of killing all of those people, all of the sons of Gideon, they don't get away with it. God's justice comes for them. And God's justice, His timing is never really on our timetable. That's the frustrating thing about God is He's God. He's not like us, so He doesn't do things how we would like Him to do. He doesn't really take our suggestions as often as we wish. But we see here is that God actually acts fairly quickly. Abimelech only rules for three years. Now, three years is a long time, but in the book of Judges, that's quick. Okay, it's been much longer that they've had to wait. It was seven years before God raised Gideon. It was 20 years before God raised Deborah and Barak. It was eight years before Othniel saved Israel. So three years, that's quick. That's fairly fast for God's judgment. That also is another way of, too, showing how bad of a king Abimelech is. He didn't get to reign that long before he messed it up. And so God's justice starts. He sends an evil spirit and God causes this division. Verse 23, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. And so God does it. Well, but, but why does he do it? Well, he tells us right away why he's doing this. He's not just being cruel. He's not just having a party in 23 and 24 that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubal might come. And their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them. And on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. So this is an act of justice. God's moving and intervening in this way is him doing this on purpose. And he brings, he moves Gaul into town in 26. It tells us Gaul, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem. Well, where'd he come from? Who is he? I think we're led to believe, well, God did this. That's why God just told us that he's stirring up division. This is how he does it. And so the rebellion starts and they start robbing Abimelech. They, they set up and they're ambushing in 25, kind of in the mountains. They're robbing everybody. They're just chaos is going on. And this chaos will only get worse and worse and worse as we continue to read the book of Judges. But so Abimelech's officer hears about it. He tells him, verse 34, And Abimelech and all the men who were with him arose by night and set up an ambush against Shechem and four companies. And they fight. And Abimelech wins. Gaul's just run out of town and he disappears from the story. But Abimelech isn't finished and neither is God's justice. So the next day he splits his army into three companies, much like Gideon did. Although instead of like Gideon to save Israel, this one is to punish Israel and to kill them. 45, he fights against the city all that day. He captured the city and he killed the people who were in it. And he raised the city and he sowed it with salt. He put salt on the city to try and ruin it, to try and make it so no one would ever live here again, to send a message, don't you ever try and fight or resist me. This is what will happen to you. See, Abimelech thinks it's his justice. He doesn't realize that it is really God's justice. He's just a tool. He's not really the king. 
But some people escape Abimelech's wrath and they try and hide in the tower. It's the, the defensive place, right, where you can stay safe from the army. It's their best version of a castle that they had. But Abimelech, he cuts down brushwood or bramble would be another way to translate that. And he sets the stronghold over them. He sets it on fire. And all the people of the tower of Shechem die. The people of Shechem are judged fiercely in fiery judgment. Why? Well, this is part of their complicity for raising up Abimelech, for their participation. They face the fire of God's judgment. This is the very fire Jotham warned them about. They had an opportunity to repent about, and they chose no. This fire comes because of the blood of innocence that they had spilled. And this also tells us God's judgment comes for all of us, that you can't escape God's justice. There is no tower that you can hide in. There is no place, no cave, no den, no rock you can bury your head under. That God's justice will not find you. No one can escape it. And Abimelech then tries to do the same thing, right? 52 goes to another tower, to Trebez, and he comes to that tower because they've gone in there and he fights against it, draws near. He's doing the same thing to burn it with fire. And a certain woman, certain, it really is just trying to tell us a, a nameless woman. There's just a woman there. It doesn't give us her name largely to insult Abimelech, to make it even worse for him. But this woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And as soon as he dies, the army just walks away. They go, yeah, okay, we're done. And but his head is crushed, much like the serpent's head, much like Sisera's head was crushed by Jael, much like Jesus will crush the serpent. And God's divine justice comes through the hands of an ordinary, unnamed woman, and the tyrant is killed by a rock, as much as he tries to escape it and call it something else. But the man who killed all of his brothers by one rock, is himself then killed by a rock. God's judgment and his justice. Not even kings and tyrants. Not even the leaders of armies. There is no one who has too much power. No one that has too much influence that they can escape the justice and the judgment of God. And why does this happen? What is this whole thing about all this violence and the civil war? Well, the, the end of the chapter 56 and 57, it tells us. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. He dies because of what he did. He had to pay for his sins. In 57, the people, God also made the evil of all the men of Shechem return on their hands. And upon them came the curse of Jotham. And it's really not the curse of Jotham, it's the curse of God and God's judgment. People cannot escape their sins. Abimelech doesn't get away with murder. He pays for it with his life. But the city doesn't get off either. They don't get to point the finger and say, well, hey, we were just, you know, we got fooled. It wasn't my fault. He, he lied to me. He's the one who really did it. He has all the power. No, 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 no. They have to pay for their sins as well. God's justice doesn't just come for the kid who gets caught with their hand in the cookie jar. God's justice doesn't get get caught for the one child who gets caught in the classroom while the others get away with it. God's justice comes for everyone. There's no escape. You can't hide. You can't finger point and blame. Adam and Eve, right away, what do they do? They start to blame others. But God's curse and His judgment doesn't just go for the ringleader. It comes for all of us and our participation. And God, He even judges His instrument of judgment. 
You see this throughout Scripture. Yes, like Abimelech, he is an evil ruler that God uses and he raises and he allows this to happen. But he then himself is also judged. And God does this. God uses nations to conquer and to judge Israel. Assyria and Babylon and others. But then what does God do? God then judges those nations as well. No one gets to escape God's justice. And God's justice is terrifying. It's a fiery judgment. This judgment that comes on Shechem is nothing still even then compared to the fiery judgment that will come at the end when Jesus returns. And the fiery judgment that awaits all of the wicked in this earth that is burned away with fire. And God's justice and His judgment is coming. This chapter should make us weary. I think partly it should teach us to never be quite too excited for God's justice to come because it is not a lovely thing to witness. But there is one escape from God's justice and judgment and is the only escape. And that's through the cross of Jesus. Because at the cross, that's where we see grace and justice collide. That Jesus himself, he bore the weight of our punishment for sins. And justice demands that someone has to pay for sin. And the wages of sin in Romans is death. And yet Jesus died in our place. He endured that death on the cross. He actually endured a human injustice. He was wrongingly accused and executed by human government. And yet that injustice, God used to bring about an even greater justice. And all of us can escape God's judgment by throwing ourselves at the cross, by confessing, hey, it should have been us up there dying for our sins, and yet Jesus died in our place, and he offers forgiveness to all of us. That no one is too far, no one is too far gone. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there is time to come to Jesus. By begging for forgiveness and experiencing the grace and the new life that he offers us. Point number three, this is kind of our application of, what, well, what do we do, so what? I think that we need to trust God's justice when we see injustice. That we need to trust in the justice of God, even when we see injustice around us, even when we experience injustice, that wherever injustice is found, what we should then do is take our eyes to Jesus. Because the injustice that we see doesn't mean that God is absent or that he is inactive. He may actually be present. Again, at the cross, we have the greatest example of, especially to what his disciples seemed like the greatest injustice that has ever been enacted. An innocent man was killed and executed by his government because there were religious people who were jealous of his power. And then they mocked him and they spit upon him. And yet, what actually was going on? God was working in incredible divine justice to deliver all of us from our sins. His disciples didn't know yet, even though he, Jesus had been trying to tell them over and over this is what was going to happen. They didn't get it. And they stood there and thought, God, where are you? You've abandoned us. How could you let this great injustice happen? Because they didn't have the right perspective. They didn't see all of the pieces on the board. Only God did. And only God truly knows what he is doing at all times in the world in each place. We don't even get the luxury of knowing right of every single bad leader is a judgment. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. What we do know is that God's justice will come for all of them. God's justice will come for every person who thinks that they have escaped God's justice. God's justice will come for every person that we can look at and we can read the history of and they've died and think, it looks like they got away with it. Where, how could justice let this happen? God's justice 
is coming. And God's justice will find them. We cannot put our hope in the justice of this world, but in the justice that is to come. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't resist injustice or we shouldn't do anything or fight anything. But most of the time, I really don't see Christians doing that. Most of the time what happens when, as believers, we see injustice of the world is we're really quick to just complain about it, quick to just whine about it, and not go and lament about it, not even complain and cry to God about it. We're quick to go online or keyboard or text or call somebody. That's what we do when we see injustice too often. But instead, we have to trust God's justice, especially when it seems absent. There's lots of ways to do this. One, th one thing I've been trying to do in my own life and put this into kind of a normal practice and habit is, ever, is through prayer. So every time I see injustice, every time I read some headline or see something or, and it frustrates me, it angers me, and I can't believe how did this happen, what is going on, I take all of those emotions and I run to the throne of God. And I take them there first. So I want you to try that. The next time you see something on television, or next time you're tempted to go online and post some meme or complain about whatever it is, before you do that, go and run to the king. Why don't you run to the one person who has the power to do anything about it? The one who has the ultimate power to, and who will one day bring true and final justice. The God who sees and the God who knows. And the God who cares about you, the God who loves you, who sees what you suffer and all of the wrong in the world that breaks his heart more than it ever breaks ours. Why don't we go to him and throw ourselves at his feet and say, Lord, look at this injustice, please. Would you do something? What I think, I don't know how different our world would look, but I know that our own lives would look much different if that was our habit. If that was how we responded with faith and with prayer, with lament towards God. And so every injustice that we see is a good reason and a good reminder. Let that be like a ping in your brain that says, you know what, it's time for me to pray. Maybe it'll be time for me to do something too, but before I do something, I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to go and act like Jesus. And we can pray with confidence because we know that Jesus is coming. The king's justice is coming and it will come for everyone. That one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and every human being that has ever lived will pass before the great white throne of judgment. And everyone will get what they deserve. The only ones who won't get what they deserve is those who have chosen to throw their cells at Jesus' feet and beg for mercy and grace. And we will get what we do not deserve which is eternal life and eternal rewards. But at that day, every injustice will finally be set right. And so look forward to that day when you see injustice now. Our hope is not in what God will do today or tomorrow. It is what God will do in the last day when he returns. That is the justice of Jesus. In summary, this morning we've talked about how God's justice, it really does often allow unjust leaders as a judgment. We've been reminded that God's justice will come for everyone. And because those are both true, what we can and what we must do is we must trust in God's justice when we see injustice. We must trust in God no matter what we see in our lives. Look at the cross, especially if you are ever tempted to doubt that God must be absent because how could this happen? Look to the cross. Remember that even 
when there is injustice through the world's eyes, God is at work and his justice is coming. I'm going to close this in prayer and invite our worship team to come up and lead us in one more song of worship. Lord, I thank you that you are a God of justice. God, we don't serve a weak God. We do not serve a God who has no power. We don't serve a God who is blind to the injustice of the world. Lord, we serve the king of the cosmos. And Lord, we want to trust in your justice. But we need your help. So often we are tempted to doubt. So often we are tempted to forget you. So often we are tempted to forget that one day you really are coming to make the world right again. Lord, would you give us faith? Lord, would you help us to trust in you? Would you let us, every time we see injustice in our lives, would you help us to use that as fuel for our prayer lives? Lord, would we be a people who trust in you and are not shaken no matter what we see around us? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we continue to worship our Lord through song. You really can cast all of your cares upon him. And he listens, and he cares, and he loves you. This benediction from the end of Romans. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you. Go in peace.